Section 6 of A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Section 6 Mr. Reed sat in his elaborate office at two removes from the outer world. His confidential clerk, Mr. Boomer, was made to inhabit the next room but one. The room between was pure waste space, an interval of emptiness that gave Mr. Reed the sense of privacy so necessary to him. Beyond the clerk's little room, the business of the firm was allowed to go on according to the traditions of his partners. Mr. Reed stipulated only for the empty room between himself and the nearest possibility of noise. It held a table and a few chairs. Sometimes, by Mr. Reed's permission, people sat there waiting— but nothing necessary to the transaction of business was allowed to accumulate therein, not even files or law-books. Thence resulted confidence, and confidences. It is impossible to say how much, in the course of years, the empty room had contributed to Mr. Reed's knowledge of his client's affairs. Space and time are so intimately connected that to possess one can easily seem like possessing the other. Mr. Reed's clients not only had elbow-room, they felt, by the same token, unhurried. Mr. Reed himself, with a little more space than he needed, always seemed also to have a little surplus time. The result was often to enable him to grasp shades and distinctions in a human situation, which bore not insignificantly on a possible compromise." The firm, to be sure, kept free on principle of lurid business, but money has always a potentially lurid aspect, and even Mr. Reed's firm had been known to deal, by way of a will, in melodrama, since settling an estate can be as vulgar as holding an inquest. Mr. Reed's spacious leisure, such as I have said, was the effect though he was a very busy man, with only a narrow chamber between him and a most professional bustle, was divinely fitted to accommodate itself to Cordelia Wheaton's affairs. Miss Wheaton herself could not have borne noise or hurry, and after Miss Wheaton's own retirement from wealth and America, a good many odd consultations were held in Mr. Reed's office that might not have been held at all on other legal premises." By a year or so after the meeting in Miss Wheaton's house, Stephen Reed could see her benevolence and its results in almost dramatic form. Cordelia Wheaton, in suppressing herself, had let loose a very varied lot of activities upon the world. Walter Levin, Bessie John, old Mrs. Williston, Julie Fort even, knew something of the plot— but no one began to see it as a whole except the quiet and distinguished lawyer. Each beneficiary had necessarily abated some of his or her secrecy for this one man. He knew about the John's investments. He knew the size of the check that had started Jim Huntington on the longest trail of all. He wasted a good deal of time over Mrs. Williston's demands for a thumping interest on a safe investment. He strongly suspected that old Miss Bean had somewhere a veritable stocking stuffed with veritable banknotes, and he was almost sure that Julie Fort's capital would not last out two years. 
He had also information enough for shrewd guesses about a dozen others. Certain families had gone west on the strength of Miss Wheaton's gifts. One or two people had frankly disappeared. Several automobiles had been acquired, as well as at least one pronounced taste for strong drink. One aged woman had been removed from an old lady's home to be domineered over by almost forgotten relatives. It was natural that many effects should escape Mr. Reed, but there were threads enough to fill his fingers, and he sometimes felt that Cordelia Wheaton's beneficiaries would constitute a microcosm quite adequate to all experimental purposes. Some acquaintance, almost amounting to tacit friendship, with Walter Levin was the only thing Reed had got out of it for himself. It had become sheer duty to look after Levin's windfall for him, and Levin's personality had won on the lawyer. Levin, too, had excited Mr. Reed's curiosity. He was so eager to have the money safe, and he seemed so little to want anything new or wonderful or sky-defying from it. There was a touch of the miser there, without a hint of greed. Yet at Walter Levin's age he might so safely have thrown in the clutch— Mr. Reed shrewdly suspected that his arteries would not last much longer, but Levin rejected the suggestion of an annuity with almost pious horror. Nor was he in haste to make a will. He had no one, he averred, to leave his money to. Yet the question of a will came up occasionally between them, and it was evident that something irked Levin. Mr. Reed gave him time— he liked the multitudinous delicacies of the older man, shining here and there amid his reticence like flowers in a forest. Moreover, Walter Levin was the only one of them all who asked a little wistfully for news of Miss Wheaton. He was formal, he was quiet, and there was no eagerness in his eyes. The rest of them, even Mrs. John, had seemed to clutch a little. Reed liked him. On this particular day, the lawyer was expecting Levin. A note. In spite of his telephone, Levin still kept the more dignified habit of notes. Had warned him. Mr. Reed was very busy, but he had had for some weeks a revived interest in Miss Wheaton's affairs. He was glad Levin was coming, and he gave orders that they should not be disturbed. Walter Levin was always shy to begin with. He hesitated as though the spacious leisure of that office were not a fiction, but at last he made a vague approach. About my will, I've been thinking. I should like to get it off my mind. I think you have never told me whether you had ever made one. No, not really. A little paper stating that one or two objects were to go to the Metropolitan. No one would have contested it. But... Now that I am a man of some property, he smiled sadly, I fancy it is a duty. We will draw it up for you with pleasure. You might send me full notes of what you want to do, and then I will have it properly executed. Little papers, you know, are apt to be no good at all. Third cousins spring up, third cousins who care nothing at all about the Metropolitan, he explained whimsically, as he would have done to a child. Quite so, yes. Levin's wintry smile was pure manners. 
he was evidently pondering a larger matter. "'I ought to have done it before,' he said a little anxiously, as people will be anxious for the final accomplishment of something they have postponed for months. But I was uncertain in my mind. I had thought of leaving my share to young Huntingdon, but I had a long letter from him this morning, a very jolly letter, and I am not sure that I can bring myself to it. I respect him, but I do not understand his tastes. And it seems to me, he finished irritably, that perhaps enough of Miss Wheaton's money has been spent already on the continent of Asia. Mr. Reed shifted his gaze a little and listened intently to his companion's tone. A less experienced man would have examined Levin's countenance. I am almost inclined to agree with you, he said quietly, but I should be much interested to know your reasons. Is young Huntington making an ass of himself? Not at all, not at all. Levin's voice was almost apologetic. But his letter rather put me off, jolly as it was. I dare say I am narrow. My life has been chiefly Italy, and then memories of Italy, and then more memories. I can't at my age take an interest in Sikkim, can I? nor yet in the people he seems to have fallen in love with. Lapshas, I think he calls them. Certainly not Tuscans. I think he wants to enrich a whole village of them, set them up agriculturally, buy land outright for them. It seems they've been oppressed. I don't know. The virtues of the present generation are as incomprehensible to me, I'm afraid, as their vices. "'No, not Jim Huntington, though I respect him.' "'Well, send me the notes and I will have the will drawn up,' repeated Mr. Reed. If this was all, much as he tended to like Levin, he remembered that there was business beyond the empty room that he ought to attend to. Then Levin pulled him up short. "'I want to consult you first. My object is to leave everything I have to Cordelia Wheaton. But if I leave it to her outright—' Well, you see what she has done with it already. It would be battledore and shuttlecock. If I don't consider young Huntington good enough for her money, certainly I don't consider any of the others so, though the Johns seem to me nice people in a smug way. So, he resumed after a pause, I can't will it straight to her. I couldn't depend on her using it herself. That is where you must help me out. "'Couldn't I leave it to you in trust for her, "'so that she couldn't possibly spend the principal, "'yet couldn't get away from the income?' "'Mr. Reed placed his fingertips together. "'Would you mind telling me how recently this occurred to you? "'I take it from what you said about young Huntington "'that it has not always been your idea.' "'Levin hesitated.' his grayish-brown face wrinkled with the obvious endeavor to choose his words. No, I did not think of it at first. Perhaps I was a little bitter. Perhaps I was a little proud. He did not explain his words, and Mr. Reed was forced to get from him such light as he could. And, of course, it seemed rather absurd just to give it back when she had been at such pains to get rid of it. But all that has passed away— I particularly want her to have it. 
in spite of herself. Mr. Reed was a tactful man, but he felt curiosity sharp as youth's own, and he could not refrain. "'I hope you will not think me impertinent. Has anything happened to bring about this decision on your part?' "'Nothing. Nothing.' The expression in Walter Levin's face sufficiently disposed of any suggestion of the sort. A shadowy countenance, escorted by shadows, you might say. I have known Cordelia Wheaton a very long time. Thoughts may be permitted me that might seem officious in others. I shall be most at peace if I know that what she has given me is placed where it can be useful to her, where she cannot prevent its being useful to her. So, if you would kindly draw up that kind of document, I will send you the notes you ask for. Now I will not take any more of your time. At the door of the empty room he turned. Is it asking a great deal of you to ask you this? I, I really know nothing about such things. It is sometimes done, surely. Whatever the usual procedure, I leave it quite to you. You can rely upon us, the lawyer spoke in a short, satisfied tone. Thank you. He still held the knob of the door. How is she? Are you still by way of hearing? This time it was Mr. Reed who replied absently. Well, I think. Yes, well. His mind was busy elsewhere, and Walter Levin passed into the outer offices. Left alone, Mr. Reed did not at once declare himself ready for the business of the firm. He was profoundly moved. A very old friend of Miss Wheaton's, Levin evidently was. The lawyer did not speculate sentimentally. Love affairs did not concern him unless they bore a legal aspect. Besides, Levin's face was the negation of emotion, even of that adulterated emotion known as sentiment. But it was very pleasing that Levin should have come to him on just that errand. He liked Levin. He felt as if Levin had done him a good turn. Stephen Reed would not forget. Here and there a human being did have some sensitiveness, some delicacy. The fact is that Mr. Reed still austerely thought of that distributed wealth as Miss Wheaton's money. Even after a year, he could hardly recognize the scattered particles as separate units. He had never liked her decision to impoverish herself, and the little he knew about her own plans for existence shocked him quite as much as fuller knowledge had shocked Levin. Levin had finally come to see Cordelia's act as vitally a part of her, a madness for which no one but Cordelia was responsible. His bitterness was against life, for permitting Cordelia, of all people, to be like that. But Mr. Reed was slightly hostile to the rabble that had benefited. He saw them, at least, as accessories after the fact. With the exception of Levin, who had the grace not to be happy, he felt them all slightly criminal. Luckily, there was other business to bestir himself about. He rang, with a sigh, for Boomer. End of section 6